This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There was a rumor that Jagannath Shankar Seth, the famous merchant, Mir Jafar Ali, the titular Nawab of Surat, Kasim Natha, Dharamji Punjabhoy and Bhau Daji, the respected Sanskrit scholar, had been in conspiracy with Nana Sahib in 1857. Charles Forgett, the police commissioner of Bombay, called them over. He said he was one of their own and was ready to join in the rebels if needed. The three gentlemen assured him of their cooperation. Forgett believed that the rebellion was purely a sepoy mutiny and did not extend into a broader conspiracy, not at least in Bombay, among the Indian ruling class and respectable middle class citizens. Military authorities in Bombay wanted Forgett to speak to the leaders of the Muslim society. He did not see any need to do that. He believed it would be unduly alarmist and might actually sow distrust in their minds that the government had been suspecting them of mischief. Yet, he immediately recruited an additional 50 mounted policemen, given that there were nearly 15 million Muslims in Bombay. And in case of a rebellion, there would be a need to control at least 10 to 15,000 active individuals. He also made rounds in the city um, at night and in disguise. He arrested people wherever he heard them discussing the rebellion. It had created such salutary effect that the Muslims remained wholly loyal. There was a serious apprehension that uh, they may rise up in rebellion during the Muharram. But that event went off peacefully enough. Forjit had in fact addressed a gathering of respectable Muslims in Bombay, appealing for calm. He was convinced that if the soldiers remained loyal, the townspeople would cause absolutely no trouble. However, Forjit did indeed uncover a conspiracy. Sepoys used to meet regularly in the house of one Ganga Prasad, um, a Hindu priest and physician in the Back Bay area. Forjit quickly confronted him and arranged for a regular surveillance around the surrounding. He himself made four visits in disguise. Since he believed the evidence from the police would not be enough, he took along a senior military official with him during these surveillance visits. It turned out that a small body of sepoys had indeed planned to carry out a rebellion, initially during Muharram and later postponed it to Diwali. Later, they planned to join the forces of Nana Sahib in Pune. But obviously, court marshals were duly summoned. A drill havildar of the Marine Battalion and a sepoy of the 10th Regiment of the Native Infantry were convicted. They were later publicly blown away from guns, an episode to which I will come shortly in the podcast. One other sepoy of the 10th Regiment was also convicted, with evidence given against him by sepoys of his own regiment. He was transported to the Andamans for life. This is Bombay Born, Episode 3 on History Chatter Podcast. I'm Onirban Bandupadhyay 
and we've been understanding exploring watching looking back at bombay since the 1850s to the memoirs of dinshaw watcher at the beginning of the 19th century mumbai or bombay was a reasonably small town for instance in 1803 bombay's population had not even reached a lakh the fort area held a modest settlement including the soldiers civilians and merchants both european and indian that is parsi hindu and muslim by the 1850s however the town had grown to accommodate close to 5 lakhs of men and women the first formal census was conducted in 1864 but several sources repeat the figure of 5 lakhs by 1850 life in the fort area was not easy at all technology was primitive and disasters such as a fire would destroy life and property every time a fire occurred the authorities would call the military unfortunately there was no police force or a dedicated fire brigade even in the early 50s there was only one fire appliances station in bombay at the time fire appliances meant some antiquated hand pumps which were kept together inside an enclosure a few men dragged them by hand to the site of the fire whenever it occurred and wherever it occurred another set of men walked those pumps some leather hose pipes and iron buckets also hung from that enclosure ceiling the scarcity of water in the fort area which i mentioned in the last episode worsened matters it was not a scarcity of water not exactly since the area stood right next to the sea what the town lacked is a piped water system the authorities put in place a peculiar warning system whenever a fire occurred drummers would climb up to the top of the ramparts and uh, march up and down beating their drums pass the message to the neighborhood dinshaw watcher's grandmother recalled the fire of 1803 with great horror she would repeat a gujarati proverb that a burglary was preferable to a fire while a burglar would carry away all valuables in a household the house would yet survive a fire on the other hand left absolutely nothing standing that particular space at the elfin stone circle a um, space as in where the ancient fire enclosure stood in the 1850s would later be occupied by the charter bank and the mercantile bank in the late 19th century by the 20th century those two banks too would be gone incidentally Elphinstone Circle was not named after Mount Stuart Elphinstone. He was of course the most famous or accomplished Elphinstone that Bombay had ever known. The circle was named after his nephew John, John Elphinstone. John Elphinstone was appointed the governor of Bombay in 1853. He ensured that the city survived 1857 without any damage. Elphinstone Circle was later renamed um, in 1947 as the Horniman Circle. Horniman Circle as in uh, after B.G. Horniman, the Irish journalist who edited the Bombay Chronicle, where Watcher's Memoirs were first published. Horniman was a staunch supporter of Indian's national movement for freedom. 
He had walked on the streets of Calcutta in Dhoti and Kurta during the Swadeshi movement against the proposed partition of Bengal. In 1913, he moved to Bombay, taking over as the editor of uh, the Bombay Chronicle. The Bombay Chronicle was a mouthpiece of the nationalist movement, countering the loyalist, the Times of India. The British government later deported Horniman for publishing credible reports of the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. However, he returned in 1926 and resumed editing the Bombay Chronicle. He passed away in Bombay in 1948. By then, the Elphinstone Circle had been renamed the Horniman Circle in 1947, soon after the independence of India. Okay. Let us return to John Elphinstone. He was quite an audacious character. In his younger days, uh, John Elphinstone was suspected of being close to Queen Victoria herself. In 1857, he received a good deal of assistance from Charles Forget, the police commissioner. Forget himself was no less of an interesting character. He used to travel the city in disguise, including that of a scavenger, or a Berber. It shows the degree to which he had mastered the local language and manners, not just of the wealthy, but also of the lowly poor. The efficiency and incorruptibility of the police force during his time had since become a legend. Forget Hill, or Forget Hill Road in Tardeo today, is named after John Forget. He later wrote a book on his experiences in Bombay during the rebellion. He called it, and I quote, a real threat in India, unquote. The book he wrote in 1877, a full 20 years after the rebellion. It was dedicated to his boss, John Elphinstone. The rebellion used to be called a mutiny those days. During the uprising, Forget's greatest success was the arrest of two prominent leaders of a plot to destabilize Bombay. Watcher did not remember the details of that plot very well, but uh, looting the homes of several prominent residents on the night of Dhanteras, or two days before the Diwali, was reportedly a part of the plan. Watcher may be confusing the details um, of two separate cases. He was more interested in the drama, the drama which was involved when um, the two gang leaders were later court-martialed and blown up at the cannon's mouth. It was a terrible sentence, but rather commonplace those days. There was a large gathering in the Maidan on the day these alleged conspirators were to be blown up from the mouth of two cannons. Wacha and other Elphinstone school students had just finished classes and were on the way home. The sight of a large crowd had stoked their curiosity. Jostling through the commotion, they slowly made their way to the site of the execution. The ringleaders were chained to two cannons. The soldiers, both European and Indian, had taken positions. It was quite a spectacle. There was a great build-up of excitement as the crowd waited for the execution to begin. Finally, a command followed and the cannons were fired. The burnt flesh of the two mutineers pieces of which were randomly scattered, fell all over the ground. They reeked of an unpleasant smell. It was stinking. Such horrible experiences, however, were rare. 
Far more common was how the Indian residents of the fort area, such as the Parsis, enjoyed themselves at the Maidan. The northern section of the Maidan was devoted largely to military activities. However, the southern part of the Maidan was a popular haunt for the residents of the fort area, particularly of the Parsis. There'd be groups of men seated on a straw mat with a weaker lantern at the center. They would lazily sit and chat up. Young children would be playing Gilly Danda in the distance. Watcher described Gilly Danda as an, uh, I quote, Indian kind of cricket, which was still quite popular in the villages, unquote. The men sitting on the straw mat played a game called Asuk Mahasuk, part of which involved standing on one leg, while the other leg was lifted off the ground at an angle. It is not clear whether the adults played this game. The children certainly did. The adults played card games and one of the popular card games was called Bad Shai, which involved three players. Others would play board games such as Draught or Checkers, yet others would happily chat away or share gossip. Some of them would be avidly listening to a priest or an erudite civilian reading or sharing episodes from great Persian epics such as Firdausi Shehnama. They always had a peculiar style of delivery, those priests or experts. In essence, it appeared to be similar to Gregorian chanting. Little girls in their silk frocks or young boys in their quaint caps made up of kinkhab imported from Surat would stand by and listen, transfixed, even though most of them did not have much patience. They paid attention only to the most exciting parts and then they carried on with their freewheeling walks or runs. All the Parsis who visited the Maidan during the late afternoon or evening were not wealthy. They were the refreshment vendors too. Then they were the itinerant peddlers who sold sugarcane. They were Parsis. By the 20th century, the Parsi sugarcane vendors had disappeared. The sugarcane peddlers in the 20th century would be either Hindus or Muslims. Tea and cakes were largely unknown yet. Sugarcane was the only popular refreshment. The vendors would strip it off the bark and cut it into small cylindrical pieces. Ganderi, gulab, ganderi, they would shout. The hawkers vending the sugarcane pieces, I mean. Yet, the wealthier Parsis had access to a larger range of confectionaries. There was a Parsi bakery, yes, a Parsi bakery did indeed exist. They sold biscuits and cakes. Well, their Parsis trusted an establishment called Bahadurji's Bakery at the Meadows Street. Humbler Parsis went to a modest confectionery at the Military Street. The most popular confectionery item was called Karakari. It was a kind of crisp oval biscuit scooped out hollow with two crowded bits. Recreation or what was called air eating in the Maidan, was more or less an exclusive Parsi form of entertainment. Hindu or Muslim families did not visit the Maidan for leisure. They would emerge from their homes and visit the sea on the occasions of Holi or Diwali, or during some fair. The stalls were numerous and the words well displayed. The vendors had not yet mastered the technique of aggressive display or marketing. But European toys had a great market. They had just hit the market and would immediately become a craze. 
They were frightfully expensive and exclusive as well. A speaking doll dressed up and barely emitting the sound of mama, a primitive version of Barbie perhaps, would cost as much as five rupees. Some of those toys which radiated some tunes would cost as much as three rupees. It was a completely or largely masculine affair. Hindu or Muslim women of upper classes would hardly go out to visit such fairs. The only women visible were typically from the Parsi community. As I said, the southern area of the Maidan was virtually colonized by the Parsis. Some of them even used to pray shortly before the sunset, and the priests would be present in large numbers, especially on some feast days. The practice of praying in the open ground before the sunset continued among the Orthodox Parsis of Bombay even in the 20th century. Some Orthodox Parsis still prayed to the sun god at the Maidan. I said that by 1850s, Bombay probably had a population of about 5 lakhs. The population of the fort area expanded simply because a number of European and Indian merchants and traders set up their homes in the city. Before that uh, devastating fire of 1803, the residential buildings were fewer. They were mainly business premises and public offices. As trade expanded with time, the fort area began to attract a larger population. There were the official establishment, the custom house, there was the dock, the secretariat, the court. All of these were located within the premises of the fort. Indian traders, but obviously preferred to live in the vicinity. The most important community which engaged in foreign trade was, of course, the Parsis. Quite obviously, the wealthier Parsis decided to set up their homes in and around the fort. The Parsis entered into business with Englishmen as brokers or intermediaries, as in guarantee brokers. Most of the English or Scott firms took on Parsis as guarantee brokers. These men had already set up business of lending money. The Dadi family, the Redimani family, the Banaji family, or the Wadia family were signs from houses which carried on uh, with their independent business as well. They carried out import and export trade to China and the United Kingdom. Of course, the trade to China was in opium, a point that Watcher deals with some care. He mentioned, for instance, that it was a legitimate trade. One of the signs of the Wadia family connected with the eminent banking house of the Forbes and Company. The houses of the first Sir Jamsedji was associated with Remington and Company. Remington and Company succeeded Bruce Fawcett and Company. The family of Sir Kawasji Jahangir and his brother was connected to Messrs. Cardwell Persons and Company. The Banajis as brokers were connected to Messrs. Lakey and Company. The Dadis were brokers to the esteemed Gray and Company and Pill Castles and Company. The first generation of wealthy Parsis had clearly started out as middlemen, especially in financial and trading matters to the East India Company. The father of Sir Dinshaw Petty was engaged as a guarantee broker in the firm of Dyden Hunter and Company and Rennie Scoble and Company. The eldest branch of the Wadiyas were, of course, uh, master builders, and they collaborated with the East India Company's naval architects. 
They put together a mighty fleet of ships, which was later inherited by the Indian Navy. The Vikaji family were associated with the financing of the Nizam's dominion. Quite clearly, the early generations of successful Parsis were bankers and moneylenders. Most of these families, which had legitimate connections with British mercantile concerns or managing agencies, quite naturally took up residence in the fort area. Some of these legacy homes still stood tall in the early 20th century. There was, uh, for instance, one in the street called Kawasji Patel Street. It was a large house on the left with a broad veranda and three quaint-looking floors. The house originally belonged to Ardeshir Dadi, the founder of the Dadi family. He was a native of Surat and moved to Bombay from there. The home was more than 150 years old and the structure of the interior still stood quite far. There was another house which was modified in the 20th century. It belonged to Kawasji Patel or the family of Kawasji Patel. He had reportedly repelled the invasion of the piratical Saeeds in the 17th century. That house was a specimen of Portuguese architecture. It was low in height and had only a ground floor and kind of attic. It used to have Portuguese tiles on the roofing. The house of Navroji Jamsetji stood next to the house of Kawasji Patel. Later, it was burnt and rebuilt. By the 20th century, it had disappeared. The houses attracted watchers' attention primarily for two reasons. These houses gave an impression of how men from the mercantile or commercial background came to live in the fort area since 1803. The second was that they embodied the accomplishments of Parsis as an enterprising community. But uh, it was not only the Parsis who lived near the fort. There were the Hindus and Muslims. The most prominent Hindu home in that area was that of Moti Chand, who lived in the Bazar Gate Street. He was a merchant and a banker. That building too was over 100 years old by the 20th century. Opposite to Moti Chand's house was the home of the banker Atmaram Bhukan. These houses carried out money lending and hundi transactions and survived up to the mid-1860s. The house of Atmaram Bhukan was popularly known as Kaka Parek Pahedi. It was so popular that it was a household name. Even the child in the street knew it well. The offices of the indigenous merchant bankers were quite a sight. Plenty of the staff members would be called mehtas. They were banking clerks. They would sit squatted on the floor and keep on working. The partners were engaged in selling and buying daily, hundreds of inland bills of exchange. Transactions often worth lakhs. It was the Indian banking house of the time, the Bhukan house, and ran successfully for close to 150 years. Till the speculation of 1864 gobbled it up. But such was the fame and reputation and integrity of the house of Atmaram, that its bills passed clean in every part of India. Its commercial credit was so highly spoken of that there was a standing joke that each hair of the mustache of the partners was worth at least a lakh. Of course, it was only a manner of speaking. 
but it does emphasize the strong credibility that these early generation of financiers among the Parsis and the Hindus enjoyed at the time in the market. Let's bring this episode to an end with this accounts of the early Indian mercantile firms of Bombay. They had fun. They went to the fairs, but they were as yet vulnerable to sudden catastrophes, whether it was natural disasters like fire or a financial catastrophe like the crash of 1864. I'll have more to say about the early leaders of Bombay society, the Europeans, the Parsis and the Hindus, and the ways in which the city changed since the 1860s, especially after the arrival of the cotton trade of sanitation and piped water supply, of the coming of post, telegraph and a number of more modern amenities. But that's in the coming episodes. Till then, this is Anirban signing off. Music